Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And our text this morning will be verses 13 through 16. So as you're opening your Bibles to those verses, let's stand together. I know you just sat down. We'll read these verses and ask for the Lord to bless us as we as we consider a glorious, glorious four verses. First Thessalonians two, beginning in verse thirteen. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word, which we hold in our hands even now, which we have read together. Many of us in the same room together, some of us still joining over the internet. We, we pray, Father, that as we continue in our time together, that we would revere rightly the words that we have just read. And that your Holy Spirit would impress upon our hearts the words themselves, which remind us that we are not reading the words of men, but your words. And that we would be moved as we study today, that we'd be moved by your Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us to thank you, not only for your word, but that your word has had its way in us and is having its way in us by moving us to wait with perseverance for the Lord Jesus. We thank you now. And we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, some people like to listen to different kinds of music while they do different activities. Pastor John, I believe you listen to Christian rap as you study. Am I, am I correct in this? Sometimes he does. Pastor Jason, I, I'm not sure what it is that's going on in his office. I want to say it's polka, something weird in there. I like to listen to classical music as I'm studying, not just because it helps me think, but one piece of music can last a long time. You can get about 15 minutes into a piece of music and forget you're still listening to the same composition that was started 15 minutes earlier. You, you never get that sense of mystery with kinds of music like country music. With country music, you listen to the same exact song every three minutes. But with the, with these long, multi-movement, classical pieces, you can get 13 minutes in, 
And eventually you'll hear a theme that resembles something that you heard a half hour earlier and you're reminded, oh wow, not only am I still listening to the same piece of music, but this piece of music has been telling me the same story this whole time. And we've got something similar happening in these first couple of chapters of First Thessalonians. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 2. There Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And now, almost two chapters, and about eight weeks later, we come to chapter 2, verse 13, and read, And we also thank God constantly for this. Now, I'll take responsibility for the eight weeks part, but the two chapters part is on Paul. And we, we, we get to ch chapter 2, verse 13, and we realize, oh, wow, ultimately, this whole time, Paul has been talking about his thankfulness for what God has done in the Thessalonians. And because he returns to this theme of their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus in this passage toward the end of chapter 2, and because that's essentially what he's been discussing in the interim, the effectiveness of ministry, how God brought the Thessalonians not only to trust in Christ, but to grow in Christ, and most importantly, to persevere in Christ, we see really that the big picture here is that God is worthy of all gratitude for our perseverance in the faith. Now, how this, how this text is a variation on that theme begun in chapter 1, verse 2, that theme of thankfulness, is that this passage majors on the means, the, the main means that God uses to cause us to persevere, which is His Word. His Word. So, as Paul comes back around to show us his thankfulness for how God has used the Word to cause the Thessalonians to persevere, he's going to give us several reasons to be thankful to God as well. The first of those reasons is this. If you have received the word, thank God. If you have received the word, thank God. Look with me again at chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Now, notice who Paul is thankful to and for what. He's thankful to God for something that he sees in the Thessalonians. We noted this when we were in chapter 1. And that's striking because when we thank someone for something, we always thank the party responsible. God is the one who's responsible for the Thessalonians receiving the word. God is responsible, God is worthy of our gratitude for what the word has done in us. Now by this phrase, received the word, Paul means believed the gospel. And that's clear from not only this context, but also other passages like Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. If you're taking notes, you might write that down. Colossians 1, 25 to 27. I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. There in Colossians 1, Paul is speaking about his ministry that, that he says, he, he says he was made a minister to make the word of God fully known. So, he uses the same phrase there, the Word of God, 
But listen to how he describes it as he continues. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There in Colossians 1, as Paul refers to the word of God, he's talking about the gospel, Christ in you. Preached in the Old Testament in shadows, only fully understood in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I would I would contend that here in 1 Thessalonians, given the context that we've seen, Paul means the exact same thing when he's talking about the word of God. He means the gospel of Jesus Christ. The natural man, the person who's dead in his trespasses and sins, he cannot understand or believe the message of the gospel. Now, we use that word all the time here at Providence, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it? Well, it literally means good news, but when we talk about the gospel, we're very simply talking about paradise, lost, and regained. But the paradise that we're referring to is not so much a place as a relationship. We go back to those early chapters of the Bible. We read about Adam enjoying God's glory and unfettered joy in the Garden of Eden. He was was enjoying paradise because he was with God. But because of his sin... He was doomed and everyone who would be born from him, that is all of us, we we would be doomed to separation from God. And so consequently, we are all conceived with the same heart of Adam. We, We blindly prefer false gods to the one true glorious creator God. We're moved to rebel against him in acts of sin with with every breath of our lives. And even though we know that our rebellion brings eternal wrath upon us, we still prefer our sin to this God. And so, in our natural state, we're doomed. But the Bible teaches that graciously God sent His own eternal Son to rescue us from that sin and to return us to the joy of a right relationship with Him. Jesus did that by becoming a substitute for us. His righteous life stood in place of our rebellious life. And in His death, He suffered the wrath for our sins, even though He had never committed a single sin. Having died on the cross for those sins, God, three days later, raised Him from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection was the Father's Amen to Jesus, it is finished three days earlier. So as a result, Jesus reconciles to the Father all those who repent and trust in Him. All those who repent and trust in Jesus, they're adopted by the Father. They enjoy the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of Christ. And they're promised that Jesus is going to come again and take them to Himself eternally. Those who belong to Jesus, they will know paradise in the form of perfect fellowship with God instead of what they actually deserve, which is eternity in hell away from the glorious presence of the Lord. So that relationship that was lost in Eden to Adam is regained in the person of Christ through faith in Christ. That is the good news. That is the gospel. Life instead of death. 
Jesus instead of the fleeting, paltry pleasures of sin. Let's go back to the beginning for just a moment and think about the effect that the fall had on us, on, on every part of us. When man fell, it wasn't just our bodies that fell, it wasn't just our hearts, it was every part of us, including our minds. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 21, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is that in our fallenness, we, we cannot think rightly about God and truth. The God of this world exacerbates that problem. We read in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What, what a hellish prison of the mind to not see the glory of Christ. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what it was like to not see the glory of Jesus? Paul writes about this in other places in his letters. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says that the word of the cross, which we've, we've sung about this morning with great joy, says the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. They think it's nonsense. A couple of verses later, he says, Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. It doesn't make sense. So, why then did the Thessalonians, some of whom were Gentiles, some of whom were Jews, why did they believe? Why did they see the truth? Why did we see the truth when so many others didn't? Why did we go from one day completely rejecting Jesus to the next day worshiping Him? Here's why. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you know the Lord Jesus, it is not because you convinced yourself. It is not because all of a sudden you became reasonable. You decided to stop being stubborn. The truth is, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God said, live! You, you were in darkness, and God said, let there be light. Let the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shine in that heart. And what was formerly meaningless to you became precious above all things because of what God did. We have been awakened to who He is by the power of God through the word of the gospel. And that is why Paul thanks God that the Thessalonians received the word. And so family, if you have received the word, if you've believed the gospel, if you have loved Jesus, thank God for that. Thank God for that. He did that in you. What a kindness. But, but Paul, Paul's thankful not only that the Thessalonians received the word, but he's thankful for how. They received it as authoritative. So if you revere the word, if you revere the word, thank God. Verse 13 again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, 
which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. Many people have read the message of the Bible and they find it to be nonsense. They regard it as an obvious product of man. And so at best for them, it carries the authority of man. And because it carries the authority of man, it can be safely ignored. But others, including many of us, it is regarded not as the product of man, but as what it really is. The word of God. Now, what is the difference between these groups of people? Between those who regard it as the word of God versus those who regard it as they would any other message or body of literature? Why are some people in one camp and others in another? When I ponder that question, I'm, rem I'm reminded of Jesus teaching in the synagogue in Mark chapter 1. That would be worth writing down to, to look at in your own time. Mark chapter 1. Verse 22 in Mark chapter 1 reads this way. And they, the people, were astonished at his teaching, Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. If you understand who the scribes were, that is an intriguing verse. Because it's not that the scribes didn't teach the scriptures. That was their wheelhouse. They knew every jot and tittle of the law. They taught it all the time. And we know that Jesus taught the law. You go to Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus going to the synagogue, opening up, opening up the scriptures and teaching the scriptures. Now, why was it then that Jesus teaching the scriptures was authoritative, the scribes teaching the same scriptures, not authoritative? What's the difference? Jesus' influence is the decisive factor. He is the key to the word coming alive to the hearer. And so we see then Jesus sending his spirit upon his ascension to do his work in people, to make them believe the scriptures as authoritative. Listen to this. This is John 14, 26. Jesus said, he, the spirit, will teach you all things. In John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Holy Spirit of Christ does his work in the hearts of people to open their eyes to see what the word of God actually is, not the word of man, but what really is the word of God. Recently read about a Chinese man named Zhao living in Germany with his American wife named Kirsten. Are you with me? Chinese man named Zhao living in Germany with his American wife named Kirsten. It was about to be Zhao's birthday. And so Kirsten, as a nice gesture, wanted to find him some book to read in his native language. Now, Chinese books are hard to come by in Germany. So she looked and looked and looked, and all she could find was a Chinese translation of the Bible. Now that was a problem for her. It was a problem for him, she knew, because he was a committed Buddhist. She was a committed atheist. But she hoped that the gesture would be enough to move him to gratitude. So she bought the Bible anyway. Well, Zhao wasn't happy that it was a Bible. But he was so hungry to read his native language that he read it anyway. And he read it. And he read it. And he followed Jesus. He rejected Buddhism 
and he followed Jesus, and this created all kinds of conflict in their marriage. I mean, she hated the fact that he followed Jesus through her gift. So, she began to read the Bible so that she could more effectively argue against Zhao. And you know what happened. She followed Jesus too. And so they start reading the Bible together and they understand that the Bible tells them, hey, you can't just be a husband and wife following Jesus. You need other believers. You need what's called a church. And so they started looking for a church and they joined a church and were baptized. And to this day, they're growing as disciples. Formerly, this book was to them just a throwaway. They had rejected the truth, but the Jesus of the book persuaded them otherwise so that they understood the word to be not the word of men, but the word of God, a word to be followed and loved and joyfully obeyed. Now you and I perhaps hear the word from men. And certainly the Bible was delivered through men, but it has been inspired by God. Every word that the human authors desired to write was the exact word that the Holy Spirit wanted written. There is a perfect unity in the Scriptures that would be impossible for any one human mind to manufacture, let alone 40 plus authors over many hundreds of years. God wrote this book. The Holy Spirit testifies to us of that truth every time we read it. And the Spirit of Christ testifies to us of Him in it. And that's why those of us who are in Christ are compelled by the Spirit to listen to Him in it. We can't ignore it. We hear His authority and we obey so that when we are shown in the Word that this or that is, is the appropriate course for our lives or, or, or conduct or attitude, we cannot continue in a different direction. The Spirit of Christ in us won't allow it because He has moved us to see what this book really is, is the authoritative word of God. Now, I would, I would submit to you that perhaps some of us need a bit of a paradigm shift when it comes to revering the word this morning. Some of us may revere the word much the same way we, we revere that police officer with the radar gun hiding in the school parking lot on Cox Road. We revere it because we know it's true and there are consequences to ignoring it. And of course, that, that's true. But may I suggest that there, there's a better reverence for the Word. And it comes from approaching it and reading it rightly as a revelation of God Himself and as a revelation of His love for sinners like us. It, it's through this book that He has savingly given Himself to us. Were it not for this book, we would know nothing of Jesus. Because because we have this book, we have more and more of Jesus as we are growing in the faith. And because we know it's the Word of God, we know that these things can be trusted. And certainly, yes, there are rules, and we, we ought to praise God for that fact, because even these rules are gracious kindnesses 
by which he reveals more of his character to us and therefore brings us joy as we follow him in them. Why, why is it that the psalmist speaks so glowingly of the law in Psalm 119? Write that down too. Read Psalm 119 and, and watch how the psalmist speaks of the law of God. Why does he speak so glowingly of it? He loves the law of God. Why? Is it just that he's a rule follower? He just likes lists? No, it's because he loves God and he finds God there. He's got the right perspective on the word. and He reveres the word because he loves the God of the word. He hungers for God. The book is where we get more of the Lord Jesus. And that is what prompted John Wesley to say, Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. So brothers and sisters, if you revere the word of God today, if you, if you can't not bow to its authority, if you can look back at, at times in, in the recent or distant past and, and, and you can see times where you were headed in, in one direction and because you saw that the word of God told you to pivot and you pivoted, thank God because he has convinced you that this is not the word of man, this is the word of God. And if you can look back at the past and say, I love Jesus more now today than I did then. Praise God, because he is the one who has moved you to see. This is not the word of man, but this is the word of God. There's a further reason that Paul is thankful that the Thessalonians received the word as authoritative. It has worked perseverance in them. And so if you stand fast in the word, thank God. If you stand fast in the word, thank God. Look with me at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now let's think again about what Paul is saying here. He thanks God constantly for these things. Every time he and his ministry companions think about this church at Thessalonica, they are stopping and praying, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that your word claimed the Thessalonians and that it's working in them. Verse 14 explains to us what effect the reception of the word was having in them, what work it was doing in them. They received the word of God as the word of God and so became imitators of the churches of God in Judea by persevering through persecution. So Paul's prayers for the Thessalonians likely were of this flavor. Lord, thank you that the word is working in them to endure to the end. Paul was thankful for that because, remember, his, his definition of effective ministry is not merely conversion numbers. He's after glorification numbers. He wanted people to come to faith in Jesus, grow in Jesus, and wait for Jesus. That is, persevere, for Je persevere in the faith until the end. And that is one of the great works that the Word does in us. It moves us to persevere until the end. Now, listen, it is absolutely crucial that we understand how the Word does this in us, how it works perseverance in us. It's crucial for our ministry to others. 
And it's crucial for how we preach the gospel to ourselves. So please listen carefully. The word doesn't work perseverance in us impersonally. Here's what I mean by that. The word does not cause us to persevere in trial by merely leading us to a right cognitive understanding of a body of propositions. Rather, it works perseverance in us personally, that is, through a person. It works it in us personally in two senses, one of which we've already talked about. That is, the Spirit of Christ, who is a person, He convinces us of its truth. But secondly now, the Word of God leads us to a person. The Word of God leads us to the Son of God. Now, now listen. Clearly, Paul is a theological heavyweight. So we're not, we're not saying, we're not having to choose between theology and Jesus. Read Romans. Read Galatians. Paul can, can lift the heavy theological weights. In Acts chapter 20, Paul, Paul says, hey, look, it's, my, it's been my practice to declare the whole counsel of God. Paul taught it all. But listen, all of that theology to him was not just this beautiful ball of impersonal truth. But rather, all of that for him was Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 All of it led to knowing and loving a person. And so all of that truth that he's teaching, all of that dense theological, all of the statements and propositions, they're all leading people to know and love a person. For the word of God to have its way in someone is for the word of God to work the son of God deep into their hearts and minds to set them on a trajectory to a better Eden for the ultimate glory of the father. And to enjoy that better Eden, one must wait for Jesus, wait for Jesus, wait for Jesus. He's coming back. Wait for him. And the word works in us to wait for Him by increasing in us an appetite and love for Jesus, a person. For some, the Bible is a theological textbook. And they study it, they study the Bible much like they would a car engine. How, 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 do, how, does, how does this work? How do these parts fit together? And that's where it ends for them. Now listen, no, nobody, nobody likes to take the part, take the Bible apart and understand it more than I do. But the point that I'm making is that we have to have the right end in mind. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. If the Word of God has not led me to light and life in Jesus, it has not yet had its way in me. And I dare say that the person who has found theology to be an end in itself rather than a means to the glorious end of greater enjoyment of Christ, that person will fold like a paper airplane in the face of persecution. Look again at the middle of of verse 14. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. 
Now, if, if, you've, if you've got anything like a concordance in your head, you may be thinking about the book of Acts as you read about this, because we, we, we remember that the Thessalonians' suffering is recorded in Acts chapter 17, and we read about the, the suffering of the churches of Judea earlier in Acts. When I think about the Word having its way in us by working Jesus into our hearts and therefore preparing us to persevere in suffering, I think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. That also is worth writing down and looking at later as you're thinking through all of the things in this message. Stephen followed the Lord Jesus in his footsteps, suffering unto death. What caused Stephen to hang on in the faith to the very end? I would submit to you his own sermon in Acts 7 tells us. He had been convinced by the word of the Spirit that Jesus was the Christ. And his strength in those moments can be directly attributed to that, to that truth depicted in a vision he had in his final moments. I want to read to you that vision. Stephen had just preached Christ from the Old Testament. And then we pick up in Acts 7.54. Now when they, the Jews, heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Of course, the Jews, they just they could not stand to hear this. So they dragged him outside the city to stone him to death. And as they're stoning him, he quotes two, two of Jesus' final statements. As Jesus was suffering, Stephen quotes two of those things in his death. Stephen's strength during that time, came from truth confirmed to him by the word. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is my hope. He is my life. He is my all. That is the testimony of the word to the suffering believer. The word testifies to the reality and strength and sweetness of a reigning, returning king. And it moves the believer to stand in the worst of suffering, and wait for Jesus. Listen, when it's, when it's impressed upon our minds, our hearts, our consciences, our consciousness, the deep, deep love of Jesus for us, sinners, then we think, oh, to be hated for Jesus, what a great privilege. To die for Jesus, what a sweet and quick reward. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, boy, don't wait. Get on that. Be a great way to spend some time this afternoon. What's almost universal in the stories in that tome is that these martyrs have on their minds and on their lips the glad prospect of soon seeing Jesus. They are not rehearsing their systematic theology because their systematic theology has had its right effect in them to see Jesus and love Him. Ignatius in the second century instructed the church at Rome 
not to try to rescue him from martyrdom, lest they deprive him of his greatest desire. He wrote this to them. Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire of the cross, let let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. You continue reading, you find this amazing thing that happens in so many of these martyrs. They will refer to their execution day as their wedding day. Finally and fully wed to Christ. They were well prepared because they had been awakened to the glorious love and power of Jesus. He is better than the world and all it offers. And he has offered himself for us and does so still. The word had its way in them by leading them to the love of Jesus and therefore to love him. As we read things like Fox's Book of Martyrs, we may think, man, that is so far removed from our experience. Listen, the world is constantly pressing on us, sometimes in obvious ways, through overt persecution. But in days like ours, it is through surreptitiously moving us to deny him in our attitudes and actions. So perhaps today it would be wise for us to take some time to consider how has the world been pushing on me to deny the Lord in my attitudes and actions? How's the world pressing on me to deny Him? Now here's how to prepare for that. Submit to the trajectory of the Word to lead you to the love of Jesus and to cause you to love Him. If you find yourself standing fast in the Word, that is, you're clinging to the Jesus, you're finding Him to be the greatest pleasure in this life and the next, understand this, the Gospel of Jesus is doing that in you. Therefore, thank God for that. Thank God for your perseverance. Finally, very quickly, if you reject the Word, if you reject the Word, fear God. If you reject the word, fear God. Verse 15, speaking of those unbelieving Jews, Paul writes, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Wrath has come upon them at last. The Jews killed Jesus. They killed the apostles. They did their best to stamp out the gospel. We've been studying that in the book of Acts as Pastor Rick and Pastor John have been walking us through that book. By doing so, they opposed God. I'm sorry, they displeased God. They opposed all mankind and they were unsuccessful. That's the whole point of the book of Acts. You cannot stop this gospel train. It is going to reach its destination. And all those who oppose the mission of God today, they likewise will be unsuccessful and they will suffer great judgment for their rebellion. 
Judgment Day is coming. It's coming for, for the Jews who opposed the gospel in Paul's day. It's coming for all those who oppose the gospel today. Now listen, one does not need to hear the gospel and reject it in order to be doomed to judgment. Our sin alone condemns us according to Romans 1. But hearing the gospel and rejecting it will only lead to greater culpability on the last day. Listen to Hebrews 10, 26 and following. Or if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, as after hearing the gospel of Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? You do not need to hear and reject the gospel to be doomed to hell. Your sin is plenty to do that. But if you have heard the gospel and rejected it, you are even more culpable. And here's some bad news for those who have not trusted in Jesus today. You have heard the gospel this morning. And therefore, you are more culpable. And if you, if you continue in rebellion, it will be worse for you than if you had never heard the gospel at all. But, but here's the great news. Here's some really good news. You are still breathing. And that means that it's not too late. And Jesus is ready to save you. So, so I beg you, listen to him. You are carrying a debt of sin that will drag you to hell for all eternity. And there's nothing you can do to relieve yourself of that burden. It is yours. You earned it. And just like all the rest of us, you deserve to suffer for it forever. But listen to what Jesus says to you this morning. He says it to you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Trust in the righteous life and death and resurrection of Jesus to remove your sin, make you right with God. If you're here this morning and you have any questions about that, ask one of us. Ask, ask just about anybody in the room. They would love to talk to you about that. If you're watching online and you have any questions about that, you can contact us on Facebook. You can contact us on our website. We'll get back to you. Do not wait. Do not wait. The day is the day of salvation. You're breathing now. Nothing guarantees you tomorrow. And on the other side of death, there will be nothing that can help you. Only Christ can help you. Now, if you know Jesus, because by God and His great kindness, the Word has had its way in you. Thank God. Thank God.
and pray, Father, may your word have its way in me still. More Jesus, please. More Jesus, please. We're going to pray and and then we will observe a, a moment of a brief silent reflection to consider these things and how the Lord would have us to respond before we close the service. So let us pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your word, and we're grateful for the, the power with which you wielded in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave it up to us, dead sinners, to receive it ourselves, but that you spoke life into us. In our dark hearts, you said, let there be light, and you awakened us to the, to the glory that is in, in the face of Jesus Christ. You gave us life. We pray, Father, that you would help us to regard the word rightly, that we would love every page of it, that we would love all the truth there, that we would love theology, Father, but that we would follow where it leads. It leads us to you. It leads us to you in Christ. And that it would lead us to greater affection for the Lord Jesus. And that that would prepare us well to persevere. Persecution comes. We thank you, Father, that you are working in us now. You've moved us to trust in Jesus, to grow in Jesus, and to wait for him. We pray that you would do it still. We ask for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.